0: Now, looking uh, to God for his help, let's uh, turn to Exodus chapter 2 again, <coughs> and verse 15. Exodus 2 and verse 15. Where we read that when Pharaoh heard of this matter, in other words, that Moses had killed the Egyptian, when Pharaoh heard of that, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh, and of course, as it goes on to say, he dwelt in the land of Midian, where amazingly, He would be for the next 40 years, something he never expected would happen. Now, as I said last Lord's Day, we saw Moses make his choice. He made it at 40 years of age, and that choice was to reject the privileges and pleasures that were all bound up with being a son of Pharaoh's daughter And instead he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. And uh, the writer to the Hebrews equates suffering affliction with bearing the reproach of Christ. He thought that carrying Christ's reproach was greater riches than all the riches Egypt could give. And I suppose in some ways I may have glossed a little over it, but it's possible to wonder how Moses' reproach was the reproach of Christ. In what sense was his reproach the reproach of Christ? And I think the answer to that is really quite straightforward, because the reproach that Christ's people get is the same reproach that Christ himself got, simply because they are his. And the reproaches of those who reproach him, and blaspheme him, or revile him, or mock him, are the same reproaches and blasphemies and mockeries that his people get. It is as straightforward as that. So in other words, in whatever era of world history the people of God live. Whether before Christ or after Christ, it is the reproach of Christ that falls upon him. But he thought that these were greater riches than the treasures of Egypt because he had respect to the recompense of the reward. And when God gives us these glasses of faith that I spoke of last week, we simply see everything differently. It's as simple as that. And it's better to suffer affliction if need be with God's people than enjoy worldly pleasures for a time with the sting in their tail. So at last, at 40, Moses responds to the call of the gospel. But remarkably, the call of the gospel is accompanied by a second call, pretty much accompanied anyway maybe just followed very quickly afterwards, but probably even accompanied it. And that's a special call to visit God's people or to help God's people. And he would do that primarily by being a prophet. The prophet bringing the word of God to them and being their deliverer. Now sometimes the call Uh, to the Word uh, can accompany the call to Christ. Uh, Paul, of course, was like that. When the Lord laid his hand on Saul of Tarsus, as he was called then, he didn't just call him from darkness to light and make him a Christian there and then. He also, at the same time, called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that can still be the case. It's not I would say perhaps normally the case. Very often a Christian is a while on the path before God may make his call known to a particular service. But sometimes it can come very quickly. And certainly Robert Murray McChain couldn't remember a time since his conversion when he did not feel called to preach the gospel. So such a thing can happen. And Moses felt a special call upon him to visit God's people. That's how it's described in the Bible. It came into Moses' heart to visit his people. Now, it it came to his heart. It came from God, just like every call to a ministry does. It comes from God, and it came to his heart. And the call was to visit God's people. Now, as we saw on Thursday night at the prayer meeting, God's visitations are either in judgment or in mercy. And this is a call to mercy. It's a call to help the people of God. And in fact, Moses knows that it's no ordinary help that he's going to give God's people. In fact, he knows when he goes out to them that God is calling him to be the deliverer of this people. I sometimes wonder if that is something that perhaps his mother knew and perhaps his mother had put into his heart a long, long time ago. Who knows that? But certainly he is aware that God is calling him to be, you could say, the visitor of God's people. And that reminds us, if you go back just a few hundred years when Joseph was dying, Joseph saw the future Joseph knew that his own uh, uh, great-grandfather, is that right? I'm missing a generation. His great-grandfather had said that the people would be 400 years in a land that is not theirs and that they would suffer in that land. So Joseph knew that although things were good, they were going to get bad. And he said, don't bury me. Keep my bones. And as long as you see my bones, remember, I said, that God will surely visit you and he will carry you out of this land into the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Visit you. And that's the visitation that Moses knows that God is calling him to. It's a great call, not just to bring the word of God to the people, not just to declare their liberty and to call them to liberty, but to actually lead them out of that land of darkness and persecution and grief across the Red Sea and into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That was his call from God and into his heart. And of course the means by which he would do all this is the word. That's the primary means that Moses had. Of course he had the rod that God would give him, the rod of authority. But it was the word that he would speak as their teacher and as their prophet that would enlighten them, encourage them, call them to rise, call them to faith and taste and see again that God is good and who trusts in him is blessed. And of course every messenger that God really sends with the word desires to help the people of God. I hope that's the primary motivation in my own heart. Not just to do what God has called me to do, and not just for his sake, but for your sake, as those who hear the word. Moses' desire would be to strengthen the relationship of all these Hebrew people with their God, and indeed to bind them together as brethren, because As Moses could see here, they're not brethren. They're fighting. There's discord, discontent and unhappiness. Something that Moses can hardly understand. You are brethren, he says. And why are you fighting when the enemy is to be fought? But Moses has a desire to bind them to God, knowing that the closer they all get to God, the closer they get to each other. How will we ourselves, friends, if we are Christians, ever get closer to each other unless we get closer to God? If all of us get back to God and if all of us get back to God's word and all of us return to God's worship, we'll be closer to each other instead of being scattered in fragments. When there's nothing separating us very often but our own pride and a spirit of alienation. But Moses knew that that was his call and it was his call from God, and like Paul, Moses was taught a lot, and he was taught it very quickly. I believe that God more or less sanctified in a moment the forty years of learning he had had in Egyptian wisdom. He just turned that water into wine, just like that, like he did for Saul of Tarsus too, and equipped him, partially anyway, to do the task that God was calling him to. So Moses begins to move out and to visit the Hebrews, to see them, to visit their tents and to speak to their leaders. And it doesn't take him long to discover that all is not well amongst them. First of all, they're still not calling upon God in the way that you would expect them to. It's interesting that chapter 2 tells us here, just at the end of the chapter, halfway through verse 23 after Moses has gone to Midian notice after he's gone to Midian then the children of Israel groaned because of their bondage and they cried out and their cry came to God this is a prayer this cry a cry means it's a serious prayer at last it's an earnest prayer and a fervent prayer their cry came up to God because of their bondage so God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant not that he had forgotten it it just means with a view to action God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them the big question is why hadn't that happened before is it not? that's the big question How long does it take to be in bondage and slavery before you really ask God for liberty? If you're not a Christian here today, how how long is it going to take you uh, without God and without hope in the world, in the grip of sin maybe of one kind or another, how long is it going to take you, if you're spared at all, before you groan and you cry to God? As a Christian here, in a state where perhaps you have fallen back become cold and lukewarm and God has raised up difficulties and opposition just like he raised against the church here in Egypt how long before you groan and cry to God for deliverance why didn't we read about this prayer in chapter 1 why didn't we find that they were always groaning and always praying but no it took so long and Maybe you find that hard to understand. Maybe I do too. But should we? We all thought when COVID came, when no planes flew anywhere in the world, when there was a lockdown and people were sick and dying, we thought people would groan and cry. We thought the church would turn to God and expect a time of revival. Well, there hasn't been a time of revival, God hasn't moved. God hasn't acted at all. Why not? Because we didn't. We didn't. We didn't reach a place where we thought, well, really, all this is a call to us to pray and to ask God for deliverance and to ask God to work. We didn't, did we? Well, neither did Israel. So don't say, I don't understand why Israel took so long to pray when we take so long to pray too. It can be less than that. It can be things going wrong in your own home and family. And it's still by might and power that you're trying to sort it out. And not by prayer and not by the Spirit of God. So that's the first thing that Moses sees. That all is not right. That the spirit of prayer isn't there. And sometimes you know. It can take a new Christian. To pitch into a situation. To see what's wrong. Because because the sleepiness is just there. And it's permeating so far. That the people who are asleep. don't, Don't know it. They can't discern their own temperature. And in comes someone. Who has just been touched by the power of God. They've passed from darkness to life. They've moved from the palace of Egypt. And they're full of zeal for the Lord's people. And they find them fasting but Moses discerns it. And like I said a moment ago too, not just, he doesn't just discern that there's no real desire for God, at the same time he finds that they are very keen to fight each other. Seems strange that two brethren who are suffering the same, who have the same enemy, and who have the same concerns, should spend their time fighting each other. Well, of course it does. But then again, it's the same with ourselves. There are people that we worship with in the same way. We sing the same psalms. We love the same worship. We call upon the same God. We have the same church government. We have the same discipline. We have the same confession of faith. And we hardly know each other. Why should that be so? It can't be right, friends. If we have the same worship, the same confession, and the same government, to be a part is a sin. Simple as that. And it's a sin that must carry the chastisement of God. So that's what Moses saw. But he has his call, and he is grieved, and he desires to help them. Now, whatever plans Moses may or may not be forming for teaching and preaching and liberating God's people, they quickly become unstuck. And they become unstuck because of two incidents that happen on two successive days. Wasn't his plan. This wasn't the way he saw things working. But that's the way it is. Wasn't the way he saw it working. Two incidents of conflict. None of them actually involved himself. But he simply stepped into them. With the best intentions. To do the will of God. And they both go wrong. And they go so badly wrong. That they affect Moses for the next 40 years. And instead of leading God's people. Out of Egypt. He finds himself shepherding sheep In the wilderness of Midian, 40 years. That's an enormous length of time to pass when you're convinced that God has asked you to do one thing and you find yourself doing something completely different. It's all right for a year, it's all right for five years, maybe, ten years, you begin to think, well, what was all that about? Twenty years. Forty years is a lifetime, it's a generation. There were plenty people, plenty of the Lord's people in Egypt who had died before Moses came back. But that was God's will. That was God's will. I want you to shepherd 40 years in Midian before you come back a second time. Truly, friends, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. How often we discover that. And his timetable is not our timetable. Now if there's one one thing that we'd like a peek at, it's God's timetable. We'd like to see his diary. We'd like to see the timetable for ourselves and the timetable for the congregation. The timetable for his cause. It's his timetable. And that's why... I alluded to this and I'll come back to it in a second but patience is one of the great Christian graces that we need it's not the easiest to learn my soul wait thou with patience upon thy God alone alone one of the first psalms you learnt probably as a child was I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear we memorised that as children And we recited it as children. And every time we sang it in church, we didn't need the psalm book open because we could sing along with it. But it's lesson. How quickly did you learn that lesson? Me too. Still learning it. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. Now these two incidents of conflict in which Moses intervenes are important to understand. To understand what God is doing with Moses on the one hand and what he's doing with Israel on the other. And they're not actually easy to understand, these incidents. And you may well have read or heard different interpretations of what Moses did. Was he, was he right to kill the Egyptian? Did he have a call to kill the Egyptian? Was it something God told him to do? Were the people meant to respond to it? Is this the equivalent not of murdering somebody but of killing a Nazi concentration camp guard? I mean, who's going to say that that's wrong? How? How do you understand this? Well, friends, let me say in connection with that what I hope I will always say and that's that we stick close to the Bible. Stick close to what the Bible says about it because the Holy Spirit in His wisdom has seen fit To enlighten us on the matter. And he does so in the New Testament. Two passages of scripture. Shed their light back. On what Moses was doing. And what God did. In response. The first is Stephen's speech. That we read together in Acts. Chapter 7 and verse 23. Sometimes to understand a bit of it. You need to understand the whole of it. Stephen is essentially saying to the Sanhedrin, and he knows the Sanhedrin are going to put him to death. He fully expects to be stoned. He tells them that the one they have rejected, crucified, hung on a tree, as a sign of curse and rejection, is actually the Just One, capital J, capital O the Messiah, the Christ of God, that the second person of the Trinity came into this world, and as John says, he came to his own first, and his own received him not. That very often happens. Moses came to his own, and his own received him not. But Christ came to his own, and his own received him not. And Stephen says, It's no great surprise, he said, because as as I survey the history of Israel as the church of God, this is what I always find. When God called Abraham in Mesopotamia, hardly any of his family came out with him. Most of his relatives he left behind. They rejected his call. They rejected him being God's chosen and God's prophet. Then he fast forwards down to Joseph's time. When Joseph got dreams from God and when God told his brothers that Joseph was to be their own leader and their appointed man of God, they rejected him. Out of envy they sold him into Egypt. And then he comes to Moses. And he says, Moses, when he was come of years... Went to visit his brother. And he thought. That's what Stephen says. He thought that they would understand. How that by God's hand. He would deliver them from Egypt. But they did not understand. Now of course the big question is. Why did they not understand? Should they have understood? Well, yes, friends, that's Stephen's point. That's Stephen's point. You stiff-necked, he says, and uncircumcised people. You're uncircumcised where it matters. You're uncircumcised in your ears, and you're uncircumcised in your heart. You're consecrated to me with a sign in your flesh. Just like you could be consecrated at a baptism. You were were given over to God. But are you given over to God in your heart? Are you given over to God in your life? No, he says. You do always reject the Holy Spirit just as your fathers rejected the Holy Spirit. Stephen is saying they should have known that Moses was a man sent from God. Now, when God sends someone, when, like John the Baptist, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, the people recognised John. They recognised his message. They recognised his life. They recognised his personal consecration. Everything about him, they said, well, that is a man from God. And when God sends a person, it is unmistakable. We, We don't have to wonder about it. There's the stamp of divine authentication upon the person and upon his ministry and his message. It is there and it carries itself to your conscience. I'm sure I've been aware of that and you've been aware of it too. That you have heard some men and you have known that they have come to you from God. That the message they speak is from God. They should have understood that. Here is a prince of Egypt. With all the learning and wisdom of Egypt for 40 years. And he's suddenly coming to visit them on their side. And he speaks as someone who knows. As someone who has a heart for them. And someone who is clearly carrying the word of God to them. But no. Stephen says they rejected him. They did not know the time of their visitation. Now. This failure to accept him and to understand him came home to Moses uh, when he saw two people fighting. He, He comes to them in the name of God and he wants them to be at peace with each other and to be at peace with God. And he's able to discern which one of them is wrong and which one of them is right. And he speaks to the one who's doing the wrong and he says, let's, let's put this right. And he turns around aggressively and effectively says, who are you? And, and who do you think you are? And who gave you this authority that you seem suddenly to be having over us? Yesterday you were in a different place, in a different situation. And here you are today. And are we just supposed to accept that? Who made you a prince or a ruler over us? Oh, we will not have this man to be king over us. Now I've no doubt that Moses is grieved by this. It's very sad when you see a church that prefers bondage to liberty. A church that prefers backsliding, providing the pay packet is good to faithfulness with difficulty but it's amazing how many of the Lord's professing people will choose backsliding providing the nest is not ruffled amazing do we all have to examine ourselves for that just because we know perhaps that being a little more faithful might be a little more costly these things are tests Tests of not just where we really stand, but who we really are. Ultimately they're tests of that. Maybe God alone knows that. Preferring bondage to liberty. There are people who stay in dead churches because it's uncomfortable to believe to leave dead churches. That, that's the bottom line. They they give kind of reasons for it, but strip all the reasons back and it's uncomfortable to go. They'll sit under dead ministries, which God never told anyone to sit under. God never told anybody to sit under a dead, unbelieving ministry. People say, well, I'm waiting under this unbelieving ministry, hoping there's a, a, a good one coming next. God doesn't tell you to do that, friend. He doesn't tell you to do that. But obviously it's uncomfortable to take action. We can, we can look at ourselves in connection with it too. Maybe killing the Egyptian was a sign to the Hebrews that there was trouble ahead if they followed Moses. Moses didn't actually realise that killing the Egyptian was, uh, was going out there. He didn't, he didn't realise that the event was known. He didn't even think the other Hebrew had seen it. It's possible that the other Hebrew, once Moses had started fighting with the Egyptian, maybe Moses thought the other Hebrew was gone, because we're told he looked this way and that way, there was nobody, and he finished him off. But the Hebrew saw, and he reported it back. And the people who were there said, well, at least here we've got cucumbers and leeks and garlics and melons. Even if we're in bondage and we're slaves, the world rules us, it rules our education system, it rules everything about us. But we've got our garlic and our leeks and our melons. Where's this fellow going? Who knows? Is it a safe course of action to kill an Egyptian? I don't know. Is it going to antagonise Pharaoh? Yes. Can't afford to antagonise Pharaoh. Because the church sometimes forgets that God is king of kings and lord of lords. That he demands our unconditional obedience and our unconditional faith. Oh, but what will Pharaoh think? And how did that end up? Well, of course, we know how it ended up. With another 40 years of misery for Israel. That's how it ended up. They missed their opportunity... They missed their calling. They missed their blessing because they didn't recognize the day of their visitation. They didn't see God in Moses and therefore they missed out. Friends, you know, it's a sad thing when... And we can all do it. We can put blessings past ourselves. We can miss God's call and miss God's opportunity. God's calling you to get out of something maybe and, oh no, you're not going to do it you're here as a non-Christian and God is saying I'm calling you today and I'm calling you through this message out of the land of bondage and into the land of liberty I'm I'm calling you to be a Christian and you say who are you I I don't know if you've got the truth I mean I don't know I heard something about you maybe like you could hear something about Moses I don't know but is God speaking to you is he speaking to your conscience is it wise to trifle with that just like that are you going to reject the word of God. And give yourself another two years of misery. 20. 40. Is it possibly the case that by rejecting God. You're actually never going to hear him again. Because that's possible. All too possible. Life is short. Life is uncertain. Of that we can be certain. But Israel rejected Moses. Because they were stiff-necked and uncircumcised. And God just deepened their misery. He deepened it because they rejected Moses. But what of Moses himself? Well, there's another verse in the New Testament that tells us. And we didn't read this one, but let me just quote it to you. You can find it yourself later, perhaps. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Where we're told that by faith Moses forsook Egypt. Now listen carefully to this. By faith Moses forsook Egypt because he was not afraid of the king's commandment, of Pharaoh's commandment. Let let me quote it again. Well it's nearly quoting, I'm substituting Pharaoh for king, but just to make the connection plain. Moses by faith Forsook Egypt because he was not afraid of Pharaoh's command or edict. Now, many people apply that to this, <laughs> but how can you? Moses is gripped with fear. There's nothing in what he does but fear. We're explicitly told in the Bible that Moses is afraid. And he's afraid, absolutely explicitly, of, Moses, of Pharaoh's commandment. Look at verse 14. When the Hebrew who's rejecting him... And Moses takes that as being just symptomatic of what the Hebrews are doing anyway. Just, just not wanting him. Not wanting his, his life or ministry. Who made you a prince and a judge over us... Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? So Moses feared. Why? Because he said, this thing is known. This thing is known. Look at the next verse. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. Now that doesn't mean that Pharaoh's running around with a knife in his hand. He's obviously given a command. Kill him. But Moses fled. From what? From the face of Pharaoh. Now God couldn't tell us any plainer than that, that Moses is afraid. And he's so afraid that he runs away from Egypt. How does that square with Hebrews 11.25? By faith Moses forsook Egypt, not afraid of Pharaoh's command. Well, friends, there's a simple way of squaring it. Because in that passage in Hebrews, the writer is referring to 40 years later. When Moses comes back from Midian, and he forsakes Egypt then, along with the people of God, that's when he did it, not afraid of Pharaoh's command. Because here he is. You see, the writer is making a contrast. Here, fear. 40 years later, courage. Courage. And that gives us a very interesting window into what God is doing in Moses' life in Midian. Sorting out two things that need to be sorted out. First, fear. Fear of man brings a snare. The Bible tells us that. We all know that. It's the fear of man that kept you from becoming a Christian. What will people think? What will people say? What will my family think? What will my wife think? What will my husband think? It's the fear of man that kept you from professing faith at the table. What again will people think? What will my work colleagues think? How will I get on? What will happen? How will I stand if a trial comes? Fear, fear, fear. Fear of man is not good in a Christian. It's hopeless in a minister of the gospel absolutely hopeless. Once a minister starts to wonder what people think how the church will react to what he says or, or how the world will react to what he says. When he speaks about hell will the people go Ooh. once he starts to think like that he's in a hopeless situation. Hopeless. That needs to be sorted. Is Moses more afraid of Pharaoh than he is of God? Well, maybe a wilderness will teach that. There are some things an education in Pharaoh's palace doesn't equip for, But the wilderness does. Fear's got to go. And it's interesting, when Moses comes back in 40 years' time, he's not looking this way and that way. He's not panicking about what he's done. He's serving the Lord and not fearing the face of man. If there's one thing we need liberated from, friends, as Christians, it's that. We can walk around town terrified about what people think and say about us. It's got to go. It's got to go. The other thing that he needs liberated from is a hasty tendency to take a matter into his own hands. He didn't really wait upon God ...when he killed the the Egyptian. When no one was around... ...he killed him. Was there not a better way... ...to sort that situation out? Now you could say... ...you could say... ...yes but was not... ...was was this not a divine sign... um, ...that he was the deliverer? Was, Was it not something God... ...told him to do... ...as a kind of... ...signal to rise... No, we can't take it that way because the word of God it's tempting to take it that way but the word of God doesn't allow us to take it that way simply because <clears throat> Moses thought nobody saw him. Now how do, you, how do you do a sign for people if you're actually thinking that nobody's seeing it? The fact of the matter is that he looked this way and that way and when he saw that there were no witnesses, he killed the Egyptian. So that's no sign. It's no sign to the people of God. How could it be? Nobody's there. It was no sign to the Egyptians because there was no one around to tell the Egyptians. So it was just something he did. Something we can understand. Ah, oh, yes, we can sit in our armchairs and discuss the niceties of whether it was a murder or not. But if you make the relationship that I made earlier between perhaps killing. A guard in a concentration camp, maybe it's not so easy to decide on it then. He saw this man beating up the Hebrew, like he had seen others beating up the Hebrews, and he was angry at the injustice and the pain and the suffering that the people of God were going through. And at least he felt that. At least he didn't stay in an armchair discussing that. Oh, yes. Maybe when he had the man in his hands, he obviously thought that the right thing to do is just to finish this man off. Ah, but the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. He'd have been better doing it another way. Even using still his status to intervene in some kind of way just sorting it out in such a way to just gently let the man go and leave the Hebrew guard the way it was I'm not saying that as though I know how to do it I don't mean it that way I just mean that there was a hastiness in spirit and as Proverbs says see a man hasty in his spirit that there is more hope for for what than for him I can't remember but if if that haste of spirit is there again that kind of anger is not good in a Christian and again it's hopeless in a minister hopeless and again if the palace has not taught him that the wilderness will and you'll notice that when he comes back from Midian this is the wonderful thing when he comes back 40 years later we're told of him what, that he was the meekest man on the face of the earth the meekest man on the face of the earth 40 years in midian did that now there's a way in which you would say that shepherding sheep in midian can't really be a preparation for uh, the ministry of god but yes it can god's concerned with our character he's he's had his education and uh, But God's concerned with his character and that's got to be put into shape and God does that in Midian so there was something wrong at both ends there was something wrong in the church and there was perhaps something not quite right with Moses yet but God will sort that out and he works the things at both ends there was an old Christian who always used to say that God always works at both ends of the line so when Israel are in Egypt he's been patient with Canaan for 400 years uh, and when Israel comes out, that's time for judgment on Canaan. So he's working at both ends of the line here, too. The church has got to get down further before it goes down on its knees. By that time, Moses is really ready to do what God calls him to do. May the Lord help us to recognize our own times of visitation and not bring grief on ourselves or on others. Let us pray. <coughs> Eternal God, we praise you that although the wrath of man does not work out your righteousness, nonetheless it is written that the wrath of man shall praise you. And indeed you have a way not just of ruling but of overruling and making all things work together for the good. We pray that you would give us grace to learn from all that is recorded As the Bible tells us, everything written is written for our good and our welfare, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Oh, deal graciously with us, and as for our transgressions, purge them away. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's um, sing then in conclusion in Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And at verse 7 as well. Psalm 37 at verse 7. (coughs) Rest in the Lord and patiently wait for him. Do not fret, which again means don't be anxious for him who... The one who prospering in his way success in sin doth get. Don't worry about such a person. And don't be angry either. Do thou from anger cease. And an outburst of it wrath see thou forsake also. (laughs) Fret not thyself in any wise or in any way. That evil thou shouldst do. Because these things will prompt you to to do what you should. Like like Jacob, again, he's the same. Doing things too quickly, too soon in his own strength. Those that evildoers are shall be cut off and fall, but those that wait upon the Lord, the earth inherit shall. Let's just sing these three stanzas, seven to nine, standing to sing. Rest in the Lord and patiently with
1: all
0: Him who not pray. For Him who must bring in His way successfully.